This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And sometimes the stories are fun, as you know, and sometimes they're, well, they're educational, and other times, well, we're just going to tell you the hard ones. And this is a hard one, but it's an important one. And this is the story of homelessness in the end, and we're telling a bunch of these stories. And it's a serious problem in our country that's mostly ignored, and the homeless, well, they don't have a voice. Well, Mark Horavath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted, on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing from Eric. Eric lives in a homeless shelter in Traverse City, Michigan. He also works full-time as a cook in a local restaurant. Here's Mark. Eric, we're we're here in Traverse City. You're homeless. Yes, sir. Tell me about it. Don't recommend it to anybody. It is a very hard life to live, even when you're working. uh, It's hard to get to and from. I stayed at Safe Harbor for a few months, uh, trying to get on my feet, trying to get caught up with like child support and past due fines and stuff. And I work in kitchens, so it was hard. I'd get home at like midnight after everybody was already in bed and uh, wasn't allowed to take a shower a lot of the times, so only allowed one blanket, no pillow. Um, still got fed, but I ate at work. But for the most part, it's, it's not a fun life to live. So Safe Harbor is a winter shelter? Yes. Yeah. Um, but Just, because you work nights or late, it was cha- even more challenging than... Yep, and we had to be out no matter what at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning every morning, so I always had to be up early, even if I got home at 12, 31 o'clock, didn't fall asleep till 2, I was waking up at 7 to go walk around all day to walk to work. Yeah, winter shelters do the best they can, but they really are not set up for people that work second or third shift. No, not at all. Uh, that's for sure. Not at all. They're mostly set up for chronic homeless people get them inside so they don't freeze to death. Mm. It was close to work, so <laughs> I took advantage of it. But now I'm at the Goodwill. Today will be the first night here, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Now, you've been working. You've been homeless for some time, and you maintain a job. Yes. And you yep. said you like to work. I love to work. I can't, I can't not work. So most people, when they see a homeless person, the first thing they say is, get a job. Right. Well, you got a job. And mm-hmm. you're homeless. So the job's not helping you get out of homelessness. Nope, with between child supports and fines and the way the cost of living is up here, it's it's tough. We, we saw a, a tent earlier across the river here, or the lake or whatever it is. And uh, I mean, basically, uh, the people in the tent, they're working, and that's affordable housing. Yep. It's crazy. So I just met you in the hospital. We picked you up from the hospital. Mm-hmm. And you were in the hospital because? Uh, I was uh, attacked. And? And stayed for five days, had to undergo surgery uh, on the way back to Safe Harbor on my day off. And you were attacked by a combat veteran going through PTSD? True. 
and a very close friend. Wow. Can you tell me about it? I'd rather not on here. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's fine. If... Yeah, no, that's totally fine. Um, but being out on the streets is not safe. People don't realize there's so much violence from other homeless people, mm -hmm. and this is a friend, to also uh, kids come around and, uh, you know, their violence is increasing. It's not safe outside. And it's very hard. It's hard to get a job when you got to put your address down on an application, too. Because they see that, and then they want to know why, and how, and why you're looking for work, and why you haven't had work, and it's tough. How do you get around that? Experience. I've been doing what I do for 18 years now and have a pretty well-established resume and have the work ethic to back it up. What would you want people to know about homelessness that they wouldn't normally know? It can happen to anybody. One day you're on top, next day you're down. It can happen to anybody. Within an hour, you so can lose your house, your cars, your kids. So your homelessness happened pretty fast? Pretty quick. Wow. Mm -hmm. I come from Midland, Michigan, a wealthy town where Dow Chemical is and lost my house, my kids, my car to a violent relationship and decided to start over and still working on that. <laughs> um, what's your future like? My future is optimistic. The company I'm with is growing. I'm looking forward to hopefully running a restaurant of theirs one day soon. Uh, we're moving to a restaurant downtown here in the next few weeks, and they're going to turn the old one into a banquet hall. So they're going to be looking for more employees. I've gotten people jobs before, and we're still hiring if people are looking for jobs. Um, there's jobs out there if you get out and look, especially in restaurants, especially in this town. That's why I came up here, because it's... It's fairly easy to get a job up here in the restaurant industry. Yeah. Now you're, you said uh, uh, every time you're in the winter shelter, you lost stuff. Oh yeah. I've lost chef knives, I've lost a bag, tablet, um, knickknacks here and there. They just come up missing. It's no way to live. No. No, it's not. If you had three wishes, what would they be? A wife, a home, and a family. Great wishes. Uh, huh. Ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, you'll get them again. I hope so. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. You're welcome. And you were listening to Mark Horvath and Eric and a wife, a home, and a family. Those were his three wishes. He'd had them once. He's hoping to have them again. Invisible People, by the way, is Mark's 501c3 dedicated to educating the people about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. And there's no better way to advocate than to just give the microphone to the people we're trying to help. For more, search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. Eric's story, Mark Horovath's story, so many homeless people across this country's story here on Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories. And this show is produced in a small town called Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. And we love music on this show and storytelling. And this next story, well, for anyone out there who plays music just because they love it or plays a sport just because they love it and don't get famous, because most of us don't get famous. Most of us aren't B.B. King or Johnny Cash or Elvis Presley. And this next story is about just such a person. Jesse got out around town and headed down to Clarksdale, Mississippi, and found this story. We're in Clarksdale, Mississippi, at the home of local bluesman Lucia Spiller. Born in St. Louis, 1962, he started playing in church on a guitar that his father gave him. My dad was born and raised in Macon, Mississippi, down in Knox County. He moved to St. Louis. Um, he had 11 brothers and sisters, so um, yeah, I moved up to St. Louis from Macon um, when he was a youngster, I guess, eight or nine, maybe. My mom, she's from Cape Girardeau. Uh, my dad's family, you know, I guess that's where I get my music genes from. Well, my mom, you know, sang at church. That's around. 12, trying to start playing bass at church. So I was like the bassist for our church for years and years. Where I grew up playing um, structured music, drums in elementary school, fifth grade, on through high school. Like bass guitar at church. And like a bunch of my friends are clueless that I was. And we had a few basement bands. Lucius has played thousands of gigs at thousands of bars and churches and festivals over the years. Too many to keep track of. But he still remembers his first real performance. Yeah, uh, on the Easter program, at church I sang uh, <laughs> a sun, uh, sunbeam. A sunbeam? Yeah. Yeah, I can remember at the end of uh, the song I was like improvising, <laughs> yeah, like sunbeam, sunbeam, Jesus on me, sunbeam, sunbeam. I'll be a sunbeam for him, and then boom, boom. And I can remember churches, you know, just laughing, well, clapping and stuff. And I don't know. I, mean, I had <laughs> rehearsed that part, you know. I just stuck that in there. I was about maybe four, maybe. As Lucius continued to play in church, his house became the house that all the other kids in the neighborhood would come to just so they could play music together. Because we were off in um, Little League Baseball, but we always got drums and guitars for Christmas, so every time after the game, my father was coaching all the teammates wanted to come over and like just, you know, um, seventh, seventh grade, maybe, about seventh grade, we started a little basement band. So you call them basements up there in St. Louis. Um, high school I went to, they um, focused on fine arts and stuff. And it, was, it was like the real talent gene pool from our area. Matter of fact, Tennessee William Ford graduated from our high school back in, like in the early 1900s. Um, Lucius Spiller eventually graduated with a degree in elementary art, 
Influenced by his father and other musician relatives, Stevie Wonder was another big inspiration. Music is my life, man. There's always music in our house growing up, like when the songs, um, see one of the songs in the key of life, um, double vinyl plus like 45 and the songbook came out. Thing it cost like fourteen dollars, and that was a lot of money back in the seventies. So me and my brother saved up. I remember put seven dollars a piece. <laughs> and when we got it, uh, we were just listening to that constantly. You can usually catch Lucius down at a place called Reds on Wednesday nights in Clarksdale. And true to his roots, you can also find him playing at a small church on Sunday mornings. As far as right now, uh, I play guitar over at this real small church called St. Mark's. Um, here I'm talking about this little bitty, just what they call a storefront church, like where you take a whole storefront and turn it into a little couple of pews. And, you know, to me, the church is in, in your heart, you know. Yeah, all about the new suits and yeah, big choirs and you know, big church band. Also, yeah. matter of fact, we don't even have a choir. So we just scold flow. Walk with me, love. Please walk with me. While I'm on this tedious journey, walk with me, Lord, walk with me. Hold my hand, Lord, hold my hand, hold my hand, Lord. time I performed live was at my grandma Spiller's funeral because that was one of her favorite songs. Like I say, she passed away she was like 95. And she still had her Mississippi ways all them years. Uh, she was a housekeeper, you know, raised uh, 
these uh, rich white lawyers' kids growing up, because I can remember them all coming over our house at Christmas time and bringing her all kind of stuff. And uh, pretty much as a Mississippi housekeeper type way. And uh, to that day, till she died, still like dressed like Harriet Tubman, you know. Uh, I guess they have one like kind of those men's shoes. It's probably still uh, old school, deep down in different parts of Mississippi where the old, old ladies dressed like that, yeah. And she still talked with them. Hey, you chaps, you know, that. That Mississippi dialect, um, and I sang it at her funeral. Um, that was the first time I ever sang that song. And, um, I knew the song, and um, I don't know. I always sing that. You know, people probably say, "What are they doing singing church?" You know, up here in the club at the blues club. Um, well, my personal opinion, uh, all music. Um, one way or another stems from the blues, whatever genre it is, whether it's pop, classic, today's country, modern day music. And I always sing their song, just, you know, I feel it is a clearing, cleansing um, medium. You know, when I go in a place just to cleanse the, it's that bad juju out of the bad karma. Lucius Spiller's story, a musician's story, a blues story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Sports, history, arts, the culture, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll put them up on the air, and we're doing that just right now. And by the way, some of these stories are beautiful. Some of these stories are hard. Some are both, and I think this one is. And this one comes to us from one of our listeners in Des Moines, Iowa. And at the home of the mighty WHO, one of the great heritage signals in this country. And it comes from Joy Neal Kidney. In World War II, her grandmother sent five sons to war. Only two, only two came home. Here, Joy shares how her family has honored these men. 
Neglected gravestones over Memorial Day. No flowers, no one to remember. This would never happen in our family. So I thought. Growing up, I knew that my mother's five brothers had served in World War II and that the three youngest had lost their lives. Their sepia-toned photographs, all in uniform, were a familiar part of our home. Those same pictures posed for decades on the chest of drawers in Grandma's house. I grew up with women who observed every decoration day, as it was called then. I could have asked for details about those young brothers, but knew the answers would bring tears, so I didn't. In fact, Memorial Day was a wonderful time for me as a child, as it meant an outing to the big town of Perry for lunch and shopping with Grandma, Mom, Sis Gloria, and Aunt Darlene. Either Mom or Darlene would pick up the other, both toting pails of pink peonies, coral bells, and blue iris from their own gardens. Carried in the trunk of the car, these spring blossoms were for the cemeteries. We'd drive the dusty gravel roads of Madison County, then the hills of Highway 25 to Grandma's house in Guthrie Center, where she would be waiting with her best flowers, including what she called little yellow buttons. Grandma's parents and some of her siblings are buried there at the Guthrie Cemetery, so we'd leave flowers there first to remember them before heading east to Panther Corner. Perry is a few miles north of where the old Panther store used to stand. We'd skirt Perry's downtown toward our main mission, Violet Hill Cemetery in the northeast corner of town. Grandma's husband is buried there and their three sons who were lost in the war. Or so I thought. The Wilson Stones are in the east section with stately evergreens. We three generations would solemnly deliver the flowers from the car to the Wilson Stones. Everything seemed hushed. Before the four names, Dale, Daniel, Claiborne J., and Clay Wilson, we'd secure metal vases with wires Mom had cut from coat hangers. Then we'd fill them with our pastel bouquets. How nice they look, Grandma would mention. I remember her shedding tears there only once. The mood lightened on the drive toward downtown. I don't remember what the grown-ups ate, but we young sisters were treated to hamburgers and Cokes in a real cafe east of the library. Then shopping and visiting. For young girls from an Iowa farm near the small town of Dexter, this day was a yearly treat. When it was time to start back home, we'd always drive by the old Wilson acreage, a mile south on 16th Street. Grandma and her daughters always wanted to see how it looked after so many years, and how much the trees had grown that they had planted in the 1940s. Through the decades, different family members would make that annual Memorial Day trip to Perry with Grandma. One or two of Aunt Darlene's sons went along, and later on, even my own young son. Grandma died in 1987, leaving a cedar chest full of old postcards, letters, pictures, and the terrible telegrams. After Mom and Aunt Darlene relived the war by reading through them, they shared them with me. I realized for the very first time that only their youngest brother, Junior, 
is buried in the Perry Cemetery. Danny Wilson, a P-38 pilot who was killed in action in Austria, is buried in France. Dale Wilson, the co-pilot on a B-25, was lost off the coast of New Guinea with his crew. Only God knows where their remains lie. I was determined that when Mom and Aunt Darlene, who is Dale's twin, got to the place that they could no longer make the trip to Perry to remember their brothers and parents for Memorial Day, I'd always get it done. So I thought. My health got to the place where I could no longer make the trip. One day, my husband and I stopped by just to see the stones once more. I realized that because Dale's official date of death is listed as 1946, months after the war ended, no one would understand that he'd been a war casualty. A few additions to all three stones would tell more of the story of what this one family had endured. Mom and Darlene agreed, and the information was added. One stone commemorates Dale and Danny, making clear that they were both killed in action. The center stone marks the grave of Junior, whose P-40 exploded in formation training in Texas in August 1945 at the very end of the war. The brothers were aged 22, 21, and 20. Their father, Clay, died next year of a stroke and a broken heart surely another casualty of the war. Even though no family members have recently remembered the Wilsons for Memorial Day, the price that our freedoms cost this one Dallas County family must never be forgotten. And it's not forgotten here, Joy. And thanks for that peace. And Danny, Dale, and Junior... The sacrifices won't be forgotten. And here in our American stories, we don't forget. That's what we do here. As often as we can, bring back history to life. Because it's still alive, folks, and it matters. These stories matter. You know, it brings to mind the Sullivan brothers. I've been reading about them recently. All five boys in that family died in World War II. They were all on the same ship, the USS Juno. And on November 13, 1942, it was torpedoed down off the coast of the Solomon Islands by a Japanese destroyer. 687 sailors on board, 100 went into the water. Only 10 survived the elements and shark attacks. And it also brings to mind a personal story, my own family story, a story my mom told me, and I have her brother's Purple Heart. And boy, the the way they printed out Purple Hearts in World War II. It was the summer of 44, and my mom remembered a black government car pulling up to her apartment building in West New York, New Jersey. The men stepped out of the car and walked up the stairs. A dozen or so families lived in that building, and several had loved ones who would volunteer to fight. Her brother John was one of them. He signed up when he was 18, and he paratrooped behind enemy lines right around the time of D-Day. She told me she felt terrible praying that it would be someone else's door those men knocked on. And then she heard the footsteps stop in front of her door. She was 13. She told me she never heard her mom cry so hard when those men knocked on that door. Her mom didn't need to open it to comprehend the news. Her dad barely cried, but she never again saw him enjoy his life. He'd lost not just his son, but his only son, my mom told me. 
he'd lost his bloodline. And so here in our American stories, we celebrate the fallen soldiers and we honor their sacrifices and all of the men and women serving our country in uniform here and abroad. This is our American stories, Joy, Neil, Kidney's family story. So many other family stories, families whose sons, daughters, loved ones, fathers, husbands paid the ultimate price. our American stories and on our show we love to tell stories of songs the story of songs we like to call it we've done Gimme Shelter Jesus Take the Wheel Georgia on my mind There Goes My Life and today we're telling the story of Over the Rainbow the song is originally sung by Judy Garland in the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz it's so familiar that a few of us well we couldn't imagine a world without it the music Well, it was written by Harold Arlen, a Jewish writer, a man who wrote over 500 songs in his career, some of the great American songs and songbook creators from Tin Pan Alley and the great Broadway era. The lyrics of this ballad were written by E.Y. Yip Harburg, whose parents were Jewish immigrants from Russia. Here is the lyricist Harburg himself talking about his writing and singing the famous song. Let's take a listen. I belong to a special tribe of what used to be called troubadours. Sometimes they were called minstrels. Now we're called songwriters who were not ashamed of a thing called romance, emotion, humor, and especially the English language. We lived in a world that knew the difference between sentiment and sentimentality. We worked for, in our songs, a sort of a better world, a rainbow world. Now, my generation, unfortunately, never succeeded in creating that rainbow world, so we can't hand it down to you. But we could hand down our songs, which still hang on to hope, and laughter. 
so that in times of confusion like these, when all the world is a hopeless jumble and the raindrops tumble all around, heaven opens a magic lane. When purple clouds darken up the skyway, there's a lovely highway to be found leading from your window pane to a spot behind the sun just a step beyond the rain somewhere over the rainbow way up high there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby Somewhere over the rainbow Skies are blue And the dreams That you dare to dream Really do come true Someday I'll wish upon a star And wake up Where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where you'll find me Somewhere over the rainbow Bluebirds fly Birds fly over that rainbow Why then, oh why can't I? If any little bird can fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? And the song written during the Great Depression, well, its intent was to point to better times, a place without trouble or depression. It's a song of hope. In fact, it will be the hope of Judy Garland for years to come after her performance in The Wizard of Oz. The first recording of the song was on October 7, 1938, on the MGM sound stages. It became Garland's signature song. The song became the aching and longing of Judy's life. Harold Arlen said that Judy was the one who felt most deeply about the song. Garland once wrote in a letter to Arlen, quote, As for my feelings toward Over the Rainbow, it's become part of my life. It's so symbolic of all my dreams and wishes that I'm sure that's why people sometimes get tears in their eyes when they hear it. Judy is not the only one who felt deeply about the song. Judy's daughter, Liza Minnelli, tells a story of her heartfelt fan and how her mother handled the situation. Mama rarely, uh, and never around the kids, used profanity. But when she did use it, it was always funny, you know, and it always, like, well, we, what happened was we were in someplace crazy, like Lake Tahoe, and we went into the ladies' room. There was an old drunk lady in there, and it was just, you know, with <laughs> the sequin straps and one of those dames, and um, she said, oh, Judy, you're terrific. You're Judy, the rainbow, you got to always remember the rainbow. Then when she went into one of the stalls, the lady knocked on the door. She said, yes. She said, 
to never forget the rainbow. God, it's helped me through so many crises and religion. And when Mama came back, then she went up to her. The lady went up to Mama and said, I just wanted to say hello. And Mama looked at her and said, hi. Right? Which made me start to giggle. Now, and she's going on and on and on about the rainbow and about this and that and what a dear little girl and how this, this, uh, And as we're going out, she had on this incredible long feathered boa somebody had given her as a present, which was way too big for her because she was tiny, you know. She came up to here on me. And um, the last thing that this lady said again was, don't forget the rainbow, Judy. And Mama turned and <laughs> threw the boa around herself and she said, how can I forget the rainbow? I've got rainbows up my ass. And that's, well, you know, at a certain point, you can just sort of get sick of the hectoring, but look at how it moved people. The song is only two minutes and 43 seconds. But in its own way, it's timeless, leaving its stamp on history. The song won an Oscar in 1939 for Best Original Song. The Recording Industry Association of America and the National Endowment for the Arts crowned it number one on the list of songs of the century. In March 2017, Garland's original rendition of the song was added to the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally and historically significant. And the American Film Institute ranked the song the greatest movie song of all time. Not bad. Well, we're going to close out with a song as it appears in the film. And we're going to pick things up in this story of a song here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song somewhere over the rainbow. Judy Garland's signature song, a song in every American's heart. Every kid, the kid inside, every adult. Let's take a listen to the great, the immortal, Judy Garland. Annie Ann, really, you know what Miss Gus said she was going to do to Toto? She says she now, was going to... Now, Dorothy, dear, stop imagining things. You always get yourself into a fret over nothing. Now you just help us out today and find yourself a place where you won't get into any trouble. Some place where there isn't any trouble... Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away. Behind the moon. Beyond the rain. Oh, <laughs> 
This is Our American Stories, the story of a song somewhere over the rainbow. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? our American stories and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show and that's love stories death stories, war stories stories about our history and our nation's history stories about sports, the arts you name it and we talk about law enforcement a lot and our nation's military, the men and women who serve this country and mostly almost uniformly with honor and with dignity and today we're joined by a local his book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent Adventures, Close Calls and the toll of a double life, and Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana, and by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans, so we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching the body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact that it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learned. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun, French, and Cajun hospitality, their home was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking, game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields. But his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again and then hear your response. I was always the new student, the outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can imagine years later when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups, I'm walking into people that I don't know, 
complete strangers, there's that same sense of dread and and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the Corps, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me, and uh, that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible, and that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of a rock. All these difficult things, they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that heel, and that's carried me through. And I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt. And some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx. And he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps. And you know when Fred's saying that, that he means it. It's not just a a platitude. Let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is, most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with V.C., ambushes, and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleeping two hours, then on watch. And then all day, you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, you're not getting as much food, you're losing weight, you're tired all the time, you're worn down, and when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment, you're loaded down with it, you're exhausted, you're dirty all the time. It takes stamina, it takes endurance, and it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit, you've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden uh, a terrifying moment the uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head. And it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away. And after that, when you start feeling like, oh, my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close. Or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. 
And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settled down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, and that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I, I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision <laughs> because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying he really was and is the hero of the book. Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right, exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months, and... Uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come see me at my apartment, at our apartment. And he came over, we had coffee, and uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit. He asked me if I would volunteer to go undercover. I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded exciting. So I said, no, yeah. And he said, well, don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters. That started my 10-year undercover career, you know, six years with the Baton Rouge PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence, and my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safe cracker rings, just the criminal groups, and therefore, my office became the local bars. There were 
two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so um, usually uh, I'd get home maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out. And that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. Yep. And I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department. You get to hang out in the in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations. You're wearing the uniform. Folks get to know you. And here you get none of these what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf in a, in a sense. You've got a, maybe a couple of other guys you work with. You report. Some of the cops might even, not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. Right. You're hardwired for this, but you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in world war two or to North or to Korea. Uh, talk about your wife. Cause it, it did really interest me in the book the, that her role in this. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend. Next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we, you know, I made my money at the time she was working, I believe, as a secretary, about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out grocery store together every now and then perhaps to a movie every now and then but we had to be very careful and i describe in the book how a couple times when we went out we encountered criminals i was working on and i couldn't let them see my wife and i together because she looked straight and it'd be out of character for me to be with you what are you doing with her yeah i remember in one particular instance in the book you sort of just drift away from your wife she sort of gets it and she walks away and goes to the movie theater and you walk in another direction and then you get back together hours later yeah exactly i when i saw him and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater all of a sudden i whispered keep walking keep walking keep walking and then i veered off to the bad guys and she just kept i mean she knew just what to do she knew what to do but she didn't know it through training she knew it through instinct instinct and fear, yeah, which she handled well. And if she sees you afraid, or is, or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up, right? And just move, right? Like when the uh, when the uh, 
drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back. And he pointed to a We were living in a mobile home. He pointed to it, that home, and he said, hey, does Mike live there? And I was using the name Mike. Right. And she immediately knew what that was. And she was out back with our little two- or three-year-old son, you know, at the little playground. And she said, oh, oh I don't know who lives there. And so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, Charlie would be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer, and I was head back inside. And she came inside, and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door, and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me, and I jumped up and grabbed my gun, and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to you know defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her, too. So I'm looking all over, and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me. And I go out, and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, I'll be back in a moment. I get in my car, and I, I go all over for 15, 20 minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that, well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and say, look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right. I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Ural. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? Yep. Why all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read. And more with Charlie and his stories, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And now let's 
get straight to one of the best stories in the book, and it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin by bust of four ounces of heroin. So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent. And the drug dealer had told the heroin dealer, had told the agent, look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road. Drive about 12 or 15 miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road. And when you see my car, you park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry, don't worry. There are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time. You know, So it's like being on the moon, it's remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dittman, drove out in the undercover car. And all agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road, so Sarah and Jerry were really on their own, and it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving, and as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out, and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll, the heroin dealer produced the four ounces, and when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer's side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Dittman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger, bam, bam. And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Deadman, Jerry Deadman, staggering in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal, the undercover agent, is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot 38 toward her partner. She ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Deadman, the agent, and as she did, bam, Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow, pow. Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment. And when they got down there, Jerry rode over flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up, watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. She looked over at Jerry, and she saw he was covered with blood. 
And she thought, he's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down, she pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat. And about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. She took him into the emergency room. And the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here. And they put him on a table. And the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital. And the nurse left. And Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding. And as she was there after a couple of minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah, Sarah stepped out of the room and she looked. And coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes. It was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs, and she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back. And as she did, he yelled, don't put him on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put him on too tight. So she made sure she put him on. A tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him, said, Mister, Mister, would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner. And if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state. And this happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this. Go, go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. It was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building. She double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose. And she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed, maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep, and at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in, left word where she was, and the agent said, Sarah, I've been, been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep, and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were, had blood all over them, a blouse with blood all over it, and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day. 
oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, the popular supplement Sunday Papers, award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and, law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian Mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home, and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what they, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City, and they're well-known. And that's Mississippi. Right, Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford, very rural. Uh, they're well-known. But they happen to be talking with people in town, and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money, and all of a sudden— They'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home and the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of a scam target and then call others come do it, and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to, to do things. Uh, and that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies, and they're operating over a multi-state area. So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also 
very dangerous. So in northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U.S. It had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings, and they were Dixie Mafia-connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered. I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough, who were cooperating. And they were on the edges of these groups. And they were cooperating. And they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, But it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look, here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man, Mike down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad. He'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait, man, don't tell them something that bad. What I heard about, oh my God. But anyway, they, so they (laughs) spread the story. They spread the story that I was, uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft and I was at a higher level because I thought, what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly, and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that helped dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh, uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, We've already gotten rid of it. But there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind and how much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen. And so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box, and then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me, and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries, and I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they'd stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they were wanting to unload, and they took me out in the country and showed them to me, and we took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals, and one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such-and-such, he was a relative of his, lives on that, that hill up there in that house. Uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, 
what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it. But even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the, that's yep. the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got, got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, Corvettes to um, tractor-trailer trucks. In fact, tractor-trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand-new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago 12 hours before and driven down. Nice deal for $2,200. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't yeah. buy a used car from this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car. From Whatever me. you do. Yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable. Because, Charlie, you ran every, every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly... You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor's side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I, I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships. But it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time. But they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in a prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And, and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, prosecutor uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going until we've got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases, and the state agent said, um, well, you, you better get ready because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we worked. We used to 
tell folks we'd work from can to cane, can to cane. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one, from undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq when the whole place was blowing up, and he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places, and he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's story. Story.